Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and we're going to talk again about the Kingdom of God. I was going over the programs that we did last week, and we talked about uh, the conversation with Mr. Matamalo in South Africa and his kingdom governance movement and answered some of the questions in more detail than the audio and video that we released previously. I actually posted the, the video again to one of my own Facebook websites and... uh and you can find all this stuff if you go to Preparing You and you join the network. Uh, people will show you where all these different videos and audios are. I noticed that I haven't been putting up regularly all the audios for 2019. We have them going back for probably uh, a decade now. Of audios explaining how the kingdom works. And we've been working in a series uh, that I would say is the... Uh, series on structure, structure of the kingdom, structure of the church, structure of societies that actually take away your freedom and uh, your rights. Uh, all these different structures have different effect on you and on society. And how do you have an effect on that structure? And uh, I read an article this morning about some uh, studies that have been done with DNA where they're talking about you can actually alter DNA just by the sound of, you know, what you say, you know, what you speak actually can alter DNA. Now, it doesn't actually alter DNA. We know that DNA, about 20 to 10% of the DNA seems to be active, and the rest of it they start calling, as some scientists call, junk DNA. Uh, others are now referring to it as inactive DNA because they see it can become active based on at least what goes on in what they call your epigenetics, uh, the uh, all the DNA that is not in the double helix, that that changes in a particular cell and the DNA in the cell changes. And because it turns on certain elements of your DNA. Because your DNA has, you know, they I have talked to you before about this, your DNA, they thought it would be, you know, they had like 20,000 strands of DNA and... Uh, or 20,000 uh, DNA markers in uh, a single DNA of a worm. And so they thought, well, humans are so much more complicated than the worms, so it must be 200,000 or a million different uh, parts to the strand. And then they found out that we're about the same as a worm. <laughs> so, but So how can you make the, you know, you talk about it, you have the DNA in a single cell, and, uh, you know, these cells unite uh, uh, during procreation. And then that cell splits and becomes two cells. And then splits and becomes four cells. And then splits and becomes eight cells. And splits and becomes 16 cells. And and this splitting goes on and on and on. Not always in that uh, geometric pattern. But and until nine months later, a baby shows up if you haven't aborted it. And that baby shows up and has an identity and it thinks and it will learn to speak and walk and work. and It will be able to reproduce too when it comes into copulation with an, someone of an opposite, opposite gender 
of their DNA, they, they can make, manufacture, procreate another entity much like themselves. Dividing the identity of two different people and coming together with a single individual. All because of this DNA. And all those cells, when they're splitting in that womb, they become livers and kidneys and bones and and eyeballs and fingers and muscle and sinew and pancreases. And they all just, you know, the one cell changes in all these other cells. How does it do that? Well, that's partly epigenetics. And those genes... I mean, the processes of producing that child are millions of processes. Yet, you, the code that starts out the process is very limited. So, how, how does that all work? Well, actually, many parts of the code do multiple tasks. And so, what turns on a particular code at a particular time to do whatever it does? Because, see, that's why they see so much of that code that seems to be not turned on. They don't see what it's doing. Well, it's some of it's because they've already done it. <laughs> that's why you're there. And some of it is because it uh, it is potential. It is what you haven't yet done. The fact is, I believe you could do a lot more. And this is what Christ was saying, is that uh, all these things you shall do and greater things than these you shall also do. But you have to turn on that part of your genetics and that part of your epigenetics and that part of... Why aren't those things just being turned on? It's because your spirit is not turned on. Why is your spirit not turned on? Because you're eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil instead of eating of the tree of life. You're not letting the Holy Spirit into your life. You let emotion in. And sometimes people will mistake emotion for the Holy Spirit. But that's not really what emotion is. Emotion is not the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not emotion. As a matter of fact, generally speaking, the Holy Spirit is pretty unemotional. It's not, it's not affected by emotion. Your body will be. And then when your body is affected, that may cause you to reject part of the Holy Spirit because it distracts you. You know, because you're following the flow of hormones instead of the flow of righteousness. But see, that's what Christ is teaching you with seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness is the way those are, those are, um, part of the same process of awakening your Adamic DNA so that you can become not only potentially better spiritually, but potentially better physically. And so, what what does this all mean? How does this have anything to do with seeking the kingdom of God? And so, anyway, I added to a number of pages uh, that we have at preparing you this week, and talked to ministers at the beginning of this last week about uh, possibly uh, taking many of these which have become almost essays, some of these pages, we built on them, added to them, and put new things in with them. So they're becoming longer and longer, so that they become, one page is a a huge study study project in itself. 
because if you followed all the footnotes and links, you would you would come out a lot smarter than most people are right now. <laughs> At least you'd have a lot more information. Whether you put it together or not, that's that's another whole uh idea that um, you may not be uh, completely willing to receive at this time. But that's the whole thing with pursuing the kingdom of God and his righteousness. It it be, will begin to awaken certain things in you and then you can take it to the next level. Uh, so anyway, we I expanded on, on numerous pages, on um, our pages on self-defense, uh, because we have some recordings along those lines that are going up and have gone up this week. They were released on the Preparing Use Network and uh, the, our, our Kingdom Network, our Google Network, whatever you want to call it, where you can join that network, which is based on geographical areas. So if you're in Oregon, you would join the Oregon group. If you're in uh, Texas, you would join the Texas group. And you just go to Preparing You and Click on the network links and it will show you how to do that. And then when we have an announcement that we're going to make, and we talked about this last week, that it we can send it out in a matter of seconds. But then again, sometimes you don't you don't want to know that they're organizing a meeting up in New York City because you live in Oregon, so you're not on the New York group; you're on the Oregon group, so you won't. You won't have all those emails coming through to you. And the fact is they're organizing that to the general group, but there's also another whole network that you can't just get on. I don't even know how to get on all those groups. I could probably find out, but that's that's the actual living network. Those are groups based on who is sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, and that was... One of the things that we uh, shared a great deal with uh, in the last uh, week or so, because I added it to our page on what we call the tens, uh, and you know, because we run into people all the time. Don't think, uh, you know, we point out. I, I did this on Facebook. I pointed out, well, the early church was organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, and somebody says, no, that was the Old Testament. And I said, no, that's the New Testament too. Yes, it was in the Old Testament. It was in the Teutons. It was in the Lombards. It was in the Franks. They all organized in that way. Even Genghis Khan organized his people in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And Nimrod organized his people in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. The difference between Nimrod and the kingdom of God is Nimrod did it from the top down. In the kingdom of God, you have to do it from the bottom up. But Jesus commanded that his apostles organize the people in exactly that fashion. At the at the loaves and fishes. You can actually see it in several of the Gospels where he makes reference to that. If you studied history, you'd know that they did that all throughout the early church. That's how the early church was organized and to the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Because it was a network. Because the kingdom of heaven is like a net. And I've I've been repeating this over and over again, but it bears repeating because there's nobody else saying it. And that's one of the things, one of the reasons why you want to join the network is that when we put out these audios and we put out these web pages and we show people the references and the footnotes and the, and the links, you should be spreading that to as many people as you can. You, every one of you can print up a little card, get a little, 
you know, you can order these things on, on, you know, your card, your name, your phone number, your email, and on the back or on the front, you can also put preparing you and hisholychurch.org. And you learn where these different articles are or the keywords that you would look up in order to find them. And when you talk to somebody on the subway or on the street or in Walmart, you pull out one of these cards and you hand it to them and you say, yeah, just go to that website and look up this word and it'll tell you all about it. Look up the word tens and it'll give you an article that show you how the church was organized in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. You know, an individual who is extremely popular a few years ago, he's passed away now, Professor Rush Dooney, who is you know, supposed to be quite valuable and stimulating an ecumenical movement of basic fundamentalist Christians. He, you know, he's got all kinds of uh, accolades in, in what he had accomplished uh, during his career. And he is one of these people who points out that, uh, you know, because the first Christians were almost all Jews, I mean, because that's where Christ began, in Judea. Now, we know he had Romans who were following him. Pontius Pilate's wife appears to have followed him. Pontius Pilate appears to eventually become a Christian. Um, But most of the Christians, besides, you know, Roman centurions and stuff, because we had soldiers out there even talking to John the Baptist. But most of the followers were originally Judeans and Jews. And they had customs. And if you know their customs at the time, it'll help you understand the conversations that Christ and John the Baptist had with these people. But uh, those Jews had what we call synagogues, which is just a way of saying kind of congregation. It's a, the Hebrew word for congregation, at least through the Greek uh, translations. Rush Dooney points out that the average synagogue, or almost all synagogues, even to this day, the synagogues were ten elders. That's all you need to form a synagogue, is these ten elders. And elders were just heads of families. And uh, these ten heads of households uh, conducted what you would call religious services. But now when I say the word religious service today, what are you thinking? You know, we sing from the hymnal, we read from the Bible, and then what? That's a religious service. We listen to a sermon by a preacher who sits up there and orates for an hour. And we say, well, that's a religious service. Where's the service? Because there was no service. Because the early original (laughs) religious services were actually services rightly dividing bread from house to house and and those amongst us share what we have extra with those who don't have enough that was communion that was fellowship it wasn't you know going to a pizza parlor and everybody having a big pizza or having a potluck or something like that they might have had those things But all the social welfare for Christians was taken care of through the church and through the congregations, these free assemblies. That's not the case anymore. Today, everybody goes to Caesar. They say they have this King Jesus, 
But they're not living like Jesus said. They're not following Jesus. They're out there praying to the fathers of the earth and the men who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority for their daily bread, for their welfare. They even they even are the ones who take care of their widows and orphans. And they take care of their parents. And they say, well, I gave to the government and they are now supposed to take care of you. So if you need help, mom and dad, you go get your social security check. I knew a preacher who didn't want to collect his social security check. He knew there was something wrong with it. He didn't understand all the legalities of it. He knew something was wrong with it, but he was turning 72. He didn't need the social security. He was making a living still supporting him and his wife. He has a bunch of kids. And his kids are saying, Dad, you should be collecting your Social Security. Put in for that. He says, but I don't need it. He says, oh, yeah, but you could take that money and take vacations and everything. You should be, you have a right to that money. What money? What money do you have a right to in Social Security? Because the money you paid in, that's gone. That ain't there no more. That's gone. Men who exercise authority spent that. (laughs) On other people like heroin addicts and and kids who want to go to school for 10 years and still collect Social Security and become perpetual students. I know people like that. Now, I, I know it went and helped old people too. But you'd be shocked to see where most of that Social Security money goes and, and how it's spent. Because a great deal of it is spent on bureaucracy. The bureaucracy that manages the system. But it's right that those priests of Social Security, because <laughs> that's what they are, because that's what Social Security is. It's a religious program. It's how you take care of the <laughs> widows and orphans. You know, what, what did James say pure religion was? He was saying it's taking care of the widows and orphans and needy of your society, unspotted by the constitutional orders and systems of government. Unspotted by the world. It's not unspotted by the planet. It's unspotted by the constitutional order and system of government. Because the word there that they translate into world, in right in your concordance, it states that that word means constitutional order or system of government. That's what it means. You know, and people say, oh, no, no, that word, that can mean like the cosmos. You know, like the stars and the whole world. Well, how does the whole world spot you're taking care of the widows and orphans. How does it how does it do that? No. It has always meant we've shown if you go read our articles and listen to our audios on that particular word, seven hundred years before Christ that was inscribed meaning the government. That's the way the word was used. There were a few philosophers that used it because of the fact that government is an organized system and in order to explain the movement of planets and the sun and the stars and all that stuff, they use that word that means the organized system of government. It comes from the word mean camizo, which had to do with organizing troops and soldiers. Uh, they use that word in reference to the movement of the planets. Because they said, you know, those those dots up there in the sky, there's a pattern. There's a pattern to how they moved. They observed that there was a pattern to how they moved. And so they used that word cosmos to describe that. But originally, it meant 
government. That's what it meant. So how does your religion, how is your taking care of the needy of your society get spotted by government? You depend on a government that uses force to take care of the needy of your society by forcing the contributions of your neighbor. And then you start getting covetous and envious of rich people. And you say, well, we want to tax them more. Now, they they get taxed more. If everybody had to pay 10% and uh, a rich guy made a million dollars, he'd have to pay 10% of a million dollars. So he's going to pay more. But you get greedy and you say, well, we want them a higher percentage. No, nowhere in the Bible does it say that you, that rich people have to tithe more than 10%. Because that's not righteous. They're just rich. Now, of course, tithing really didn't have anything to do with 10%. It had to do with your share of your contribution. There were many that were giving 50%. We know that even with Christ. He says, I give half of everything I produce. Because he's a rich man. He can afford it. But he chose to do it. Because the taxes in the kingdom of God are free will offerings. Because you're not supposed to covet your neighbor's goods. You've completely lost sight of that. The, The average Christian in America has lost sight of that. And they think it's absolutely... Here's preacher's sons talking their father into taking money from a bankrupt system of Corbin that operates in the opposite way that Christ said to operate. And they don't even know. And of course, I blame that on the father. Because years before, which is why he came to me quietly, secretly to talk to me about this... uh, this dilemma that he was facing about not wanting to collect Social Security and not needing to collect Social Security, but his kids wanted him to collect it. And his kids are trying to talk him into it, but he's not saying, you know, Social Security is the Corbin of the Pharisees that makes the Word of God to none effect. We shouldn't even be a part of such a system. We have to be because we've, because I have sold my children into bondage of Egypt. Now, Being in the bondage of Egypt is not a sin in itself. Although, if sin is missing the mark, it certainly is evidence that you have missed the mark. But it's a generational thing. I mean, 400 years after they went into the bondage of Egypt, these people growing up in Egypt were still in bondage. It wasn't because of what they did. It was because of what their fathers had done. And so... Their fathers had eaten sour grapes and turned their teeth on edge. So now what did they do? Well, they repent, think differently, start acting differently, start walking differently, start going a different way. But the average Christian doesn't even know what the way is. But we'll tell you when we come back to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So... Uh, I said I'd tell you more when we got back, and we're back, so what am I going to tell you now? <laughs> so, uh, the uh, Thomas Jefferson once said, I have sworn upon the altars of God eternal hostility against every form of tyranny over the mind of man. And I know a lot of people you know, think that governments today are tyrannical, and taxation is theft, and other ridiculous 
soundbite approaches to the problems of the world like that. And, uh, and the fact is, is that the pro- people, you know, like, what was it? Reagan said something to the effect that, uh, uh, government is not the solution. Government's the problem. Well, actually, government is not the problem. You know what the problem is? You really want to know what the problem is? The problem is you. <laughs> That's the problem. <laughs> because you don't think the way Christ thinks. You, you might think about Christ. You might think about the Bible. You might read the Bible. But you're not thinking the way Christ thinks. And you have to change the way you think. But you don't even know how Christ thinks. And so reading the Bible may be helpful. But we'll tell you all the things about the Bible that nobody else will tell you. You know, like the tens, hundreds, and thousands. You know, that's... Christ commanded that the people be organized in this tens, hundreds, and thousands for a reason. Because if you... It, it takes a certain amount of humility, a certain amount of dedication to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. Because, you know, I know a lot of guys who... You know, they read the Bible and they go off and they, they want to live their life separate from the world and they don't want to take any of the benefits of the government, and, you know, and they've got this come out of her, my people, lest I be partakers of their sins. All good, but not enough. Because coming out is not seeking the kingdom. Coming out is just coming out. Being separate is just being separate. It's not, Jesus didn't start with come out. He started with seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So where's the kingdom of God? Oh, it's within you. Yeah, okay. Where's the kingdom of God that Jesus said, I'm going to take away from the Pharisees and appoint to my little flock? Where's that kingdom? And where's that kingdom where he says, I'm appointing unto you, which was his disciples who would become his called out, his church, he he would say to them, you know, I appoint unto you a kingdom. But you're not to be like the kingdoms of the Gentiles who exercise authority one over the other. And that, those same people who he appointed the kingdom then work daily in the temple, rightly dividing the bread from house to house. And even when the temple was burned down and they left Jerusalem under the protection of Titus, who said, leave him alone. And they went out to that network that they you've seen in the epistles that Paul is moving funds from Galatia to Corinth and to Ephesus and back and forth and stopping off at Rome on his way to Spain. He's you know he left right away with Barnabas. Barnabas no more than came from Cyprus and gave all of what he had to the apostles and became known as Barnabas. He was Hoses before. And he sent out to distribute funds on the other side of the country, in another country. So where are you doing that, you little isolated, come out of her, my people, people? How are you a part of that going on today? Are you ready to do that, which Christ and the early church was doing, or are you just going to go off and do your own thing? Have your little six-family congregation, or maybe no congregation. And just wander around being separate. That's not, that wasn't the command. Command was first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. 
And it is not righteous to abandon everybody else seeking the kingdom of God. I don't really know who's seeking the kingdom of God. I know what I see that doesn't look like seeking the kingdom of God. (laughs) But I don't know who's really seeking the kingdom of God. Because today they may not be doing a very good job of it. And tomorrow they may be doing a really good job of it. I mean, I thought it was just amazing that by the time Paul... I mean, Christianity had been around. John the Baptist had said, Jesus is to take my place. John the Baptist is executed. Jesus is hailed as the highest son of David and king and fires the money changers and and uh, rises from the dead and 50 days and goes through Pentecost. Thousands of Judeans are leaving the welfare system that Herod set up, which was the Corbin of the Pharisees that was making the word of God to none effect, and started another system. Uh, they've already had uh, Peter say, look out amongst yourselves, find men you trust, and he appoints seven men to be the uh, servants of the people by setting up a banking system that is operating on faith, open charity instead of about profit which is what those seven men were doing. We have articles that explain that and show that down through the history. And I, I can find you, you know, the early Christians did the same thing later on in Ephesus. And the seven men were persecuted, supposedly even unto death. And there are miraculous stories of their survival. And But you don't know any of that history because... That doesn't fit into the scenario of I want 500 people listening to me in the pew and then tithing to me so I have a good retirement fund. And I'm going to collect Social Security at the same time. <laughs> it's You've gone away. These are workers of iniquity. They're not teaching you the ways of the kingdom. There's some nice guys who are workers of iniquity. And are, are, are false prophets and false teachers. And because they're under a strong delusion. Now, I don't know. Once you point out that delusion, you think they'd wake up and say, Oh my gosh, I'm going the wrong way. I'm teaching my people to pray to the fathers of the earth for their benefits and the men who exercise authority. We're not taking care of any widows and orphans except, you know, to bring a little food basket once in a while. The early church was taking care of all the social welfare of all Christians and helping other people out besides the stranger who is sojourning in their midst. And, and, the, and the person beat up along the side of the road. They were helping all kinds of people because they probably understood what the red heifer was. It wasn't a cow and it wasn't red. How many fundamentalists Christians today understand what the unrighteous mammon is, what the golden calf was, what the red heifer was. They don't understand that. Now, you could say I'm wrong and I don't understand it either, but show me. Show me where I'm wrong because I've written this out so anybody, a child could figure this out. But the problem is you're subject the tyranny to tyranny over your mind. Most of the tyranny in the world today over the mind of man 
is opposed upon men by their own lack of knowledge or their prideful presumption that they already have sufficient knowledge, that they already know what they know and what they know is right. Like Mark Twain says, it's it's not what you uh, don't know that's going to get you into trouble as much as what you think you know that it just ain't so. Well, that's true, but what you don't know is a part of the problem too. You lack knowledge. That's that they tell you about that. You you lack knowledge, and uh, and your lack of knowledge is a result of sloth. While presumption of being already knowledgeable, with little or nothing left to learn, uh, is a product of pride. Pride and sloth are vices. If you go look at all the virtues, the list of virtues that they have, and, you know, there's a lot of different ways that they, they put these, um, you know, list off these virtues. I mean, we have the, the basic seven deadly sins and, and, uh, and that, uh, we have the, uh, seven virtues. I mean, some number is 13 and some is seven. But I mean, you're basically your vices are lust, gluttony, greed, sloth, wrath, envy, and, uh, hubris or pride. Uh, your virtues that would counterpart that, I mean, instead of lust, you'd have chastity. But see, now, all lust is not adultery or fornication. And of course, gluttony really is just a form of lust for food. Greed is a lust for money. Money is a tool of power, so it's a, greed is a lust for power. You know, like you, you want to exercise authority over other people. Sloth is that you want to depend upon other people's work instead of your own. Well, I was talking to somebody just uh, yesterday who was talking about drama at work. I won't say where he works or who he was, but uh, uh, they have a number of supervisors and a number of people that work under the supervisors, and the supervisors take care of a variety of roles, and... Uh, and then there are the people that the workers are tending to under that. So we, and then we have the head supervisor. And then of course there's the union. And then there's, uh, uh, because this is a part of an over, it's one part of a large organization. Uh, they have people that if you file a complaint, it may go over the head that's at that particular place. And then, there will be people coming down and checking everybody out. But So what's the real problem? Is that somebody has gotten into a supervisory position because they claim to know or seem to know something and then they got into that position, they didn't really know it, and they moved them out of that position into another supervisory position until they they kind of ruined their reputation there and then they moved them into a third one. And now he's there causing problems there. And what it is, the guy really isn't a, he isn't supervisor material. He's not empathetic. Everything is about him. He uses the people that work for him and under him 
to try to make him look good while he, because he has to feel like he's in control. So he grooms people and he, uh, he, uh, you know, fills them with compliments and gets them to compromise their position where they're doing his job instead of just their job. And then if they do a good job, he takes the credit and if he, if, if somebody screws up, he throws them under the bus. Because it's all about him. So what, what's the real problem here? He's selfish. That's the real problem. He's not empathetic. He doesn't care about the people that work for him or the people that, the people that work for him serve. He doesn't care about the system. He doesn't care about the rules. He only uses the rules to gain power over others. It's all about him. He's narcissistic. He's a bit of a sociopath. This is not rare in supervisory positions. And he, but he is able to be that way because his supervisor is a weak, spineless individual who cares more about his job than doing his job. And, and so what is that? Why is that? He's selfish too. So let's go back to lust, gluttony. Greed, sloth, those are all selfish things. They're just different as you know, like lust is you want. Gluttony is what you want. Greed is what you want. Sloth is you want others to work and you not have to work. So it's again about what you want. What's wrath and envy? Envy is certainly about what you want. Wrath is you're mad because you didn't get what you want. <laughs> and you're, you're blaming it on somebody else because it can't be your fault. You don't want the blame. You want to be able to put the blame on somebody else. And of course, pride is you don't want to admit that you're, you're slothful, wrathful, envious, greedy, gluttonous, and lustful. You want to believe that you're saved. So this is all over there on that buy side. It's all selfish. It's just seven different words to describe somebody who's selfish. Who doesn't want to sacrifice his self. So what's virtue? You know, chastity. Whatever that is. I mean, if it's the antithesis of lust, you know, you won't cheat on your spouse. You made a commitment to your spouse, so you will be there for your spouse. You won't, uh, you know, sloth. You'll be diligent in being a good husband or being a good wife. Greedy, what's the antithesis of greedy? Charity. You will give. What is the, what is the antithesis of gluttony? That's, gluttony isn't necessarily eating too much food. It's, it's self-indulgent, taking too much time off. You know, uh, you could, you could, gluttony, you know, usually has to do with consuming too much of something. I mean, drunkenness is gluttony, but it's also the certain aspect of sloth in that. You know, so the antithesis of greed is charity. The antithesis of sloth is diligence. Jesus said be diligent. He never said be slothful. <laughs> And, and wrath, 
what is the antithesis of wrath? Isn't it forgiveness? I mean, they usually put on a word like patience. But it has to do with forgiveness and tolerance and patience. What is envy? What would be the antithesis of envy? Well, if somebody is envious, wouldn't humility kind of be the antithesis of envying other people? Well, yeah, but we'll use humility later when it comes to pride and hubris. So, a common word there they put is uh, gratitude. That And what is gratitude? You know, if somebody does something for you, you appreciate it, don't you do something back for them? You want to do something. I saw the other day, you know, some video of a lady who worked at something like McDonald's, you know, not a big paying job. And evidently her car broke down and she couldn't get the money to fix it and she couldn't get the money to, uh, enough money to buy a new one. And so a customer there, son was selling his car, wasn't going to get a lot for it, but everything worked. And so the father paid the son something for the car and the son and the father together gave the woman the car. They signed the title over to her and, uh, gave her the keys. And she just, like, lost it. <laughs> she kept trying to hug them. And, you know, all they said, just just pass it forward when you get a chance. Help somebody else. Well, that's a gratitude. Gratitude is passing it forward and passing it on. And I've told the story about, you know, how the storekeeper in Granora, North Dakota, uh just went on and on about he would do anything for my grandmother, uh, even though he really didn't know her much. I mean, he was a lot younger than her, but my grandfather was one of the few guys who paid back everything that he borrowed from the store because the store carried a lot of people through the Depression. He made sure his bill was completely paid back because he was grateful for what the storekeeper had done for him. And this was passing on two generations down. The storekeeper's son is still saying it by about the grandson <laughs> of the guy who had done the kind deed. That's not envy. That's gratitude. And so everything on the virtue side is unselfish. So there's two problems. I mean, there's two two things here that we can relate to is is either selfish, either going the way of selfishness, or you're going the way of unselfishness. But like I said, we talked about in the Matamelo conversation and the, the audios that we'll be releasing in a couple of days. Th- this idea of revelation to understand the kingdom because the kingdom of God is within you and you have to be inspired by eating of the tree of the of life rather than the tree of your personal knowledge of good and evil you have to implement it into action you have to turn what you see in your heart and your mind into action and this is this is one back to the DNA thing this is how you turn on your DNA. <laughs> is that you're investing 
you know, you see a principle in the kingdom of God that has to do with chastity, temperance, charity, diligence, patience, gratitude, and humility, and you invest some of your energy and time into those different aspects of the same thing, unselfishness. And what is what is another way of saying unselfish? Sacrificial. You're willing to sacrifice your time, your energy, your money, your, I don't know, whatever you got. Your stuff. You're willing to sacrifice that. Not for your benefit, but for somebody else's benefit. You're willing to let something go. That's why Corbin, which means sacrifice in the Hebrew, means to draw near. You have to put your revelation into action. And that action has to be unselfish action. And what happens is that you're pouring out part of your life. You're laying down part of your life in a, in a kingly, godly direction. In a righteous direction. And then guess what happens? Life comes back to you more abundantly. And you turn on DNA. <laughs> And you you awaken, you put a light into your own heart. Now, what's the second thing that happens? Is you become aware of the fact that you're not always chaste, temperate, <laughs> charitable, diligent, patient, gratitude, uh, grateful, and humble. That sometimes lust gets the better of you. Gluttony gets the better of you. Greed gets the better of you. Sloth overcomes you. Wrath enrages you. Envy greens you. <laughs> you know, that's one of the things I see in the green movement. Is a lot of envy, which I think is funny, because that's what, is it envy? You turn green with envy? <laughs> because if you look at it, I mean, they, almost all of these guys are against the rich. You know, because they're envious. And, and they come up with things like wind power. Or solar power. And, and you know, like I, I shared, and, and this is, you know, I've looked at some of the statistics, and generally speaking, this is true. And ultimately, it's always true as far as I can see, is that they put these big wind turbines up, and the wind turbine takes huge, I mean, it's tons of steel ore, had to be coal-fired and everything, and produce this windmill this giant windmill, and anchored into the ground with cement and all that labor, it it expends more energy to put up that windmill than that windmill will produce in its lifetime. It, it, the only reason they can do this is they get government subsidies, which is coming out of your tax dollars. Uh, it's actually coming out of your children's tax dollars because everything the government does today, they do it based on debt. They're borrowing against the future of your children to do these government subsidies. They don't have the money. They're in debt. So there's there's a zero gain on reduced energy <laughs> and consumption of I mean, like, I guarantee you that a great deal of carbon went up into the air when you smelted that iron and dug it out of the ground and smelted it and turned it into the steel to make those windmills. Well, now they have, they find the problems with the windmills is that in some places they'll ice up. So you, there's a whole industry in de-icing the windmills during the winter time. 
with helicopters and spray and special de-icers. And, and, uh, and then they know they kill birds, eagles and owls and other things just get whacked with these blades. But another statistic that I, I saw just recently was that they kill thousands and thousands of tons, you know, it's millions of pounds of insects because they're up there in the, they put them up where there's this draft of wind and migrating insects use those same drafts of wind. And there's actually another industry that's come up besides de-icing and that's cleaning the dead bugs off of the, because it creates, it creates drag. Just hitting the bugs actually reduces the output of uh, the generators. So, Somebody has to go up and clean them. Now, you take all the energy to keep these things running, to make them and everything. You're, you've got, you've got a net loss. You do not have a net gain. That doesn't mean that you couldn't develop windmill technology and use it someplace where transmission lines would be too expensive to get. And the same with solar. I mean, it takes a lot of energy to make solar panels. And I'm not against experimenting and figuring this out, but I think that whenever the government gets involved in it, that there's going to be more waste than production. Uh, most of our innovations in this country came from the fact that we let the private entrepreneurs go. We let people exercise their own imagination and initiative to do, you know, one of the things that we're constantly becoming more and more aware of all these supposed Green New Deal environmentalist people, they all believe in evolution. But almost every government program they produce is about thwarting evolution. <laughs> I mean, vaccines, thwarting evolution. <laughs> if, if it's survival of the fittest is necessary for proper evolution, you don't want vaccines. And I could actually give you this. this is, statistics and how that works but we'll tell you more about how the kingdom works when we come back so the tearing over our minds uh, comes in a vast uh number of ways uh and i give you all kinds of examples and, and we've talked about like vaccines people think oh well you need vaccines because polio vaccine eradicated polio and and the same people who say that when you mention the fact that autism has gone up at the same rate or as the number of vaccines that has gone up, uh, they say, well, correlation is not causation. You haven't proved causation. Well, the fact that polio disappeared about the time, about the time that the vaccine came out, is correlation is not causation. There's no proof that the vaccine eradicated polio just because they happen somewhat at the same time and i have to say somewhat at the same time because the cases of polio was going way down before they came out with the first vaccine and the fact is is like i i pointed out in this testimony in front of congress uh john sock john jonas sock uh the the inventor of the sock vaccine uh said that all the cases from about 1966 or 67 
to the testimony which was in the 1970s, all the cases of polio were the result of the vaccine. It wasn't the wild virus. It was the vaccine that was causing these cases of polio. And, you know, I can go through the statistics that if, you know, for one person who gets polio where you see visible paralysis, there's 98 to 99 people that have developed 100% immunity because they got polio and showed little or no symptoms. Most people show absolutely. 95% of the people who get polio show no symptoms whatsoever. They, they don't even show a fever. You don't even know they got polio and they're immune. 100% immune for life. And that's where you get herd immunity. And the, the tiny 1% that get polio... You could probably lower that tremendously by teaching people how to improve their immune systems. Because there's all kinds of things you can do when like people are getting polio around you or getting the flu. There's all kinds of things you could do to prevent that flu or polio from getting a hold on you. And you know, another thing I bring up all the time is the Spanish flu, which took place around the same time that the polio outbreaks were starting to come up, although it had a completely different source. The the Spanish flu went away. Nobody developed a vaccine. You know, so what you know, that that all took place about the time of the Federal Reserve. So maybe the Federal Reserve cured Spanish flu. <laughs> I mean, that's just a ridiculous because they happen about the same time. <laughs> so, no, it doesn't work that way. Correlation is not causation. But, I mean, it's it's worth looking at. But the reality is, is that, no, vaccines did not eradicate polio. And But people think that. And they're willing to force everybody to get a vaccine because they think that their salvation is the vaccine. And why is that? And actually, like I've, I've made this reference is that you get into a state of consciousness and you cannot accept anything that contradicts what you have in your mind. You, you, you've just become addicted to a particular way of thinking. And of course, repentance is thinking another way. So, you know, the Great Depression was caused directly or indirectly by the government. Well, yeah, uh, through the banking system. I mean, the Federal Reserve, we mentioned that just now, the Federal Reserve was loaning, created money, not real money, created money, created capital, wasn't real capital, is actually virtual capital, because Federal Reserve notes, they're debt notes, they're not capital. You've already left capitalism when you started issuing uh, debt notes. Now, of course, when they were issuing these debt notes, these Federal Reserve debt notes, uh, there still was gold and silver into circulation. Silver was still in circulation up to the 1970s. Uh, quite a bit in circulation. I mean, you still find some around once in a while, but, uh, the, it was, it was 64, I think they stopped minting silver coins. Different countries stopped at different times. The reality is, is that silver would be capital because it's commodity money. 
Although once you start uh, putting, you know, a stamp on it, and, and especially if you say, you know, like a, a gold ounce, 20 ounces, uh, one gold ounce is worth 20 ounces of silver. When you do that, it's you're you're le- you're already in the process of leaving capitalism, because now you're putting faith in a stamp, in in, in somebody's embossing something, rather than just simply just weights and measures. When it's when you're just dealing with just weights and measures, you're in you're still in capitalism. But uh, when you step outside of just weights and measures. You're stepping outside of capitalism. When you're dealing in notes, whether they're debt notes or not, you're you're moving away from capitalism. And capitalism is natural, for those of you who don't know that already. If a squirrel gathers nuts, they're his nuts. When a mouse gathers blades of grass and seeds and puts them in his hole, those are his. That's capitalism. He can share that if he wants, and he will share it with his young. But that's uh, that's capitalism. That's all capitalism is. That you gather it as yours. And you know, yeah, people say, "Oh, you can't have capitalism without government," because how how do you secure your property without government? Well, why don't you gather in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and care about your neighbor as much as you care about yourself? Amongst virtuous people, it's very easy to have capitalism <laughs> without. An authoritarian government, because you care about your neighbor. Somebody's robbing your neighbor. You're there, and this is one of the things that they're discovering in South Africa. You know, I see it playing out there. I'm sure there's people discovering it all over the world again, and there are people forgetting it all over the world. But in South Africa, where they have these farm raids, where guys come in, they actually come in with equipment and jam uh, radio and, and phone signals. So that the farmer cannot call for aid. And then they come in and, and rob and rape and murder. And uh, so they, they're sophisticated enough to be able to jam their call signals. So they can't call for help. And then they go through the process of robbing, bringing in trucks and taking away whatever they can take away. Uh, but what's happening is that the... Uh, Neighbors are beginning to find ways of coming to the aid of other neighbors. And so that that's a good thing. Because that's kingdom. And that takes you over into those areas of between virtues and vice. That when you hear the call of your neighbor, you drop what you're doing and you go to save your neighbor because he's as important to you as you are to yourself. That's that's going to change your DNA. It's going to change your spiritual DNA. It's going to get you closer to the kingdom. Because you're investing in your neighbor, in the kingdom of God, so to speak, as much as you invest in yourself. So that's that's that that will give you more power than you than you see in that particular moment. So uh but but it's a shame that we have to wait till people are marauding and killing in order to come up with that scenario in our life. What I am preaching is that repent now before things get bad. Start developing a network of people who actually will stay together 
organize themselves and stay together and care as much about each other as they do themselves. It will begin the process of your transformation right now because it's the beginning of repentance. Because society today says, don't worry about them, just worry about you. Society today says, go ahead, it's okay to covet your neighbor's goods. It's okay to take benefits from men who exercise authority even though they're borrowing against the future of your child and your children and your unborn children. They're borrowing against their future to provide you with those benefits today. They're saying that's okay. I'm saying it's not okay. And if you think a different way and think, no, I have to lay down my life so that I can pick up my life more abundant, which is the way Christ thought, you're going to be doing something different. So people going out to other people's churches in Montana or and these other preachers are talking about, you know, you just have to believe in Jesus and you're saved and all this stuff. If they're not preaching the gospel of the kingdom, of a network of people who care as much about each other, they sit down in the tens in ranks of 50 and ranks of 100 in order to share what they have with each other in a way that strengthens everybody. If they're not preaching that, they're not preaching the kingdom of God. They're certainly not preaching it that it's at hand. And if they're saying that it's okay to go to your neighbor, to go to your neighbor and take from your neighbor through the agency of men who exercise authority through the fathers, agency of the fathers of the earth. If they're saying that's okay, they are the prophets of hell. They are sinners of, of, of a great stature. <laughs> they are, they are the workers of iniquity. They are the false prophets and teachers. Now I hope they all repent and I hope they all turn around and I hope they all wake up and start seeing it. But what we need is more people. If you're hearing this at all, you need to invest in this idea. Your time, your energy, whatever you have to invest, you need to invest it. You need to spend your life promoting the kingdom. Because it will open up spiritual doors and spiritual opportunities. And with that, physical opportunities as well. It Now, I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel because I'm also going to tell you that it's going to open the door to persecution. Because people are not going to like you. People aren't... Because I just said that most of the preachers out there are false preachers. I just said most of the churches out there are feeding a strong delusion in the people. That's not going to make me popular. But I didn't come here to be popular. I, I'm not here to tickle your ears. I'm here to smack you upside the head. <laughs> and to say, wake up, <laughs> uh, old sluggard. And start seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Because what you're doing now, that ain't it. So anyway, join the network. Get on preparing you. If if you're listening to this and you're not in an active congregation, you're the only one who can do something about it. If you don't do something about it, you're a part of the problem. It's not the government's the problem. You're the problem. Your sloth is the problem. You're... you're Greed for your own time. I want to do use my time for what I want to use. I don't want to 
take the time to be in a congregation and worry about other people. I got enough to worry about. You greedy, slothful, gluttonous individual. What are you thinking? No, you need to form that network that was the early church. You have to do it. I can't make you do it. I'm I'm supposed to require that you do it, because he says make them sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. But the way they did that is you didn't get no loaves and fishes till you sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. And there's a lot of fish to share, <laughs> but you're not getting any. There's a lot of bread to share, but you're not getting any. Until you care enough about others to sit down. And cause you, why are you sitting down? So that somebody will be there for you? Well, wrong reason. You, you're sitting down in these, this network because you want to be there for somebody else. Christ didn't come to save himself. He came to save others. That he came that they might be saved. So that's why you need to gather. So, you know, work in relief programs, minimum wage, you know, social security, Fannie Mae, all these different programs that appeared back in the 1930s are actually contributed to the creation of the 1938 depression. Yeah, and, you know, I actually heard somebody talking about uh, the New Deal. And, uh, they, they, they said, well, we know what they, they were talking to a particular, uh, economist, uh, who actually I've been reading some of the things I was trying to think of what his name is. I'll probably get it wrong if I just try to do it from memory. I had it here in my notes somewhere. <laughs> but, uh, well, there's a couple of, oh, there's Stephen. I know that, uh, oh, Pearlstein. Uh, Stephen Pearlstein. He actually, I think he writes for the, uh, I thought it was the uh, Huffington Post, but I actually, I think it's the Washington Times. Uh, but anyway, he's actually, he's an economist and he's a pretty smart guy. He's, he's written some books like, uh, Can America Capitalism Survive? And, uh, of course I just explained that we haven't had a capitalism in this country since 1916. <laughs> but, uh, uh, some of the other titles, uh, why greed is not good and opportunity is not equal and uh, fairness won't make us poor. Um, so, you know, those titles, and actually I know for a fact some of these titles, he would not have chosen them. But his publisher chose them. Because <laughs> I, I read the some of the titles, you know, because I I'd heard him speak. And I thought he was pretty sharp, but then I read these titles and I said they all sound like, you know, liberal, uh, Democrats or, uh, uh, progressive liberal socialists, uh, kind of in the title. But of course, I think that's his publisher <laughs> doing that. Cause the guy really isn't. He, he, he thinks capitalism should work, but, but, uh, now he hasn't. And I don't know whether he would agree with me or not. I think I could get him to agree with me that, you can't really have capitalism. You can have a semblance or a virtual capitalism, but not real capitalism if you don't have capital. And Federal Reserve notes are not really capital. They're a lot like capital, and you can use them like capital, 
and you can develop some of the virtues that come along with good capitalism, because there can be bad capitalism as well as good capitalism, because capitalism is not a moral system. It's not an immoral one. It's just, it's just what you produce is yours to decide what to do with it. That's what capitalism is. And so, uh, somebody's running big machinery outside. I hope that's not ruining our recording. <laughs> uh, anyway, the, uh, this, uh, uh, Pearlstein was uh, giving a talk and somebody said, well, we know what the problem is and we know what the solution is because we know the New Deal works. Well, I, I would go like, what? <laughs> And I saw him twinge a little bit when he was asked that question. And he answered it without being insulting. I don't know if I could do that. I might have to be insulting. What makes you think the New Deal worked? <laughs> That's Your mind is imprisoned with the idea that the New Deal worked. No, the New Deal did not work. <laughs> and there's mounting evidence. You know, I, I can quote you from... Um, uh, a number of different e- economists that uh, there's mounting evidence, however, makes clear that the poor people were principal victims of the New Deal. The evidence has been developed by dozens of economists, including two Nobel Prize winners, but also by Brown, Columbia, uh, Princeton, John Hopkins Universities of California and Berkeley and University of Chicago, among other universities, all have done extensive research showing that the New Deal actually prolonged the Depression and actually created uh, an arena, an economic arena in which more depressions would come. Uh, it tripled federal taxes, tripled, tripled federal taxes from $1.6 billion in uh, 1933, which was already high, to uh, $5.3 billion in 1940. And it just continued to go up. Which is... But not only that, but borrowing. Uh, is it, Now we're borrowing to pay the interest on the debt that we created back then. So we're just... It's like they moved the sidewalk farther down. <laughs> we're headed for the sidewalk and they moved it farther away. But you're just going to hit, because of momentum, you're just going to hit that much harder. Uh, excise taxes, personal income tax, inheritance taxes, corporate income taxes, holding company taxes, and so-called excess profit taxes all went up. FDR New Deal harmed millions of poor people. Uh, that was... I was quoting from uh, Jim Powell's book by almost uh, the same name. Uh, the, and then there's the question, they talk about in the midst of World War II that the income taxes exceeded the excise taxes. That's for the first time. What's the difference between income tax and excise taxes? Because actually in some places, income tax is referred to as an excise tax. And... It, I could go into a whole detail, and we do we do have some articles on it, employee versus enslaved is income tax an excise tax, or is it you know direct tax or indirect tax what what is it because that debate is going on in the upper courts all the time 
And the reality is, is income tax is a tax. Is it's, it is an excise tax. It's a tax on your labor. Well, how did the government get a right to tax your labor? Well, you volunteered into it through the contract clause of the United States government. It's another whole realm, but I don't know if we can free all of your mind at one time. So we'll just make a reference to it. And you'll just have to do more research on it. Uh, did uh, the New Deal end unemployment uh, or even reduce it? Actually, it did not. <laughs> it did not. You know, there was a recession before 1933 that was actually extremely severe. And we were out of it in very short period of time. And the only difference between that depression and the the 1930 depression, 33 to 38 depression, 39 depression, was the government didn't do anything to get you out of the depression. We just worked our way out of it. Because it, it would naturally, we would naturally work our way out of it. But the, the depression was directly caused by the Federal Reserve. Directly. But indirectly by your sloth, greed, avarice, etc. Federal Reserve was issuing this money and putting it in circulation, which made borrowing money from local banks, because they're the banker's bank, really cheap. And so people would borrow money from the bank, and then they would invest it in something. And sometimes they'd invest it in land or business or 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 whatever. I mean, generally speaking, Americans weren't invest, borrowing money to take vacations. They were borrowing money to invest in business. Uh, occasionally they would buy equipment with it, farm equipment or whatever. But the reality, uh, and, and sometimes they had to borrow money just to buy seed to put into the ground. That That's a little dangerous, but they'd gotten that habit too. But they started borrowing money and putting it in the stock market because you could borrow it so cheap and the stock market started to go up. So you could borrow money at a cheap rate, buy stocks with it. The stock would go up double in value because everybody else was doing the same thing. And then you could sell off half of your stock, pay off your loan, and the money keeps going up. But people were greedy. <laughs> and they didn't sell the stock uh when they had enough stock to sell part of it and pay off the loan. They just borrowed more money. And then they started buying stock on margins. And it, it's crazy. I mean, uh, uh, Calvin Coolidge knew it was crazy. Other economists were saying, it's crazy, we can't do this, this is, will end up in a lot of trouble and and sure enough they did uh but the greed blinded them and they just kept going and so all the federal reserve had to do at a given point is stop loaning money to banks and so then there wasn't as much money to loan to banks so the interest rates started going up when the interest rates started going up people said oh i don't think i'll i'll buy stock uh, this week. Not all. Some decided to. And guess what happened? They didn't buy stock. Because they didn't borrow money. They didn't buy stock. They didn't buy stock. Stock started to level off. And even started to go down. When it started going down, everybody wanted to sell. But some people had bought on margin. And even selling wasn't going to get them out of debt. And so it just snowballed. And that's all the result. And it was predictable. 
there were people who knew it was coming, people who said it was coming, people, but the purpose of all this was to gain, what, what happened is that guys that knew it was coming, they, they got a big huge cash pocket. They built up their cash. They sold their stock when it was still going up, got this huge cash reserve, and then when everything crashed, they went out and bought land Millions of dollars worth of that, billions of dollars worth of land and buildings and everything else. And then they were going to make the money on the upswing. And you were duped. But people don't see this. If The Holy Spirit should have shown you, but they weren't listening to the Holy Spirit. They were over there in that selfish category of greed and lust and avarice and sloth and all these things. And guess what? We're still over there on that side. It's become the way of the world. And you don't want to go the way of the world. You want to go the way of righteousness. So you have to start turning around and, and seeking the kingdom is that process of turning your thinking around. We'll be back to Keys of the Kingdom. Okay, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So one of the crazy ideas is that the new deal works we know the new deal works the lady says uh, that's what we need to do and that is being espoused today all over the world and uh, and it is used to promote the idea of socialism because the new deal was socialistic for certain you know micromanaging the economy creating jobs by taxing other people to get the money to pay people to do jobs i mean it doesn't work it absolutely does not work. And you know who told me that? The guy who created the New Deal. <laughs> uh, which is uh, Henry Morgenthau Jr. Uh, he was the guy who did it. And, and you can you can go look look him up, and they'll they'll tell you. I'll give you a quote right from him. And this is after eight years of managing uh, the. Uh, the uh, New Deal, uh, he was the Secretary of the Treasury, and he had put the New Deal together, and he stated, we have tried spending money. We are spending more than we have ever spent before, and it does not work. And I have just one interest, and if I am wrong, somebody else can have my job. I want to see this country prosper. I want to see people get a job. I want to see people get enough to eat. We have never made good on our promises. Uh, after eight years of this administration, we have just as much unemployment as when we started and an enormous debt to boot. Well, now in America... They elected uh, this in the United States. They elected this other president, Trump, and employment is skyrocketing. Uh, there's more jobs available now than there are people on unemployment. There's work to be had. And you know, the secondary thing that when that takes place is that people start getting paid more because the value of an employee, especially a good employee, uh, goes way up. The problem is, it's the the problem now is finding good employees because kids are smoking dope and 
and not showing up to work and they don't have a work ethic. Why don't they have a work ethic? They got that in public school, which is the other place you spend money. See, there are so many different things that you're doing wrong uh, that you can't make things right until you start dealing with all these different aspects. So that's why in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, there's homeschooling, home health, home industry, home businesses. That's what you need to do. Your kids need to be in business. Your need, kids need to be doing chores. Your kids need to be... Uh, learning responsibility. If I don't do it, it don't get done. Uh, they, they need to be given values and have values. And that, that's where we're going to go with this in a little bit and, and see what are those social values and, uh, and how do we put those into motion in our lives and in our children's lives. Because there's there's probably nobody you should be laying down your life more for than your children. But if you have to love your neighbor's children as much as you love your own, you can't be just your isolated family coming out of her, my people. You have to be seeking the kingdom, which means coming together, not forsaking the gathering together. And you have to gather together to do what the early church was doing because they had received direct instructions from Christ. And we just saw Rosh Dooney, uh stating very clearly that they were organizing in these tens, hundreds, and thousands. And networking. And, and you see it in the, the New Testament. They were doing this organizing in these tens, hundreds, and thousands all across and beyond the Roman Empire. That's the way it worked. You know, and, uh, and we just need to understand how that kingdom operates. And the only way to understand is to learn by doing. Because the real teacher is not me. The real teacher is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit lists this where it will. So you need to be investing in others so that the Holy Spirit can come into you. Because that's the nature of Christ. That's putting on Christ. Because like I said, Christ didn't come to save himself. He came to save others. So that has to be your primary concern. Or at least equal to any other personal concern you may have. So anyway, back to, real quick. The the average unemployment during the uh, period of time where they were trying to implement the New Deal was 17%. And uh, it actually, sometimes it was over 20%. Actually, uh, quite a bit of the time, it was over 20%. Uh, one of the reasons they even got the the numbers down to 17% is they didn't count people who were in jail. <laughs> and uh, they, uh, they didn't count people who were on the Civilian Conservation Corps and, and these other work projects as unemployed. But they really were unemployed because they were manufacturing jobs they weren't private industry. It wasn't capitalism. It was cronyism. And it was the government was taxing one group of people to pay another. And then, like he says in his quote, they weren't just spending the money that they were taxing the people, even though it had tripled. Uh, they were spending money that they were borrowing. They had this huge debt. And so things like the National Industrial Recovery Act uh, uh, cut production. And uh, forced wages above the market level. 500,000 jobs 
were lost amongst the blacks alone. That's that's what your socialism does. That's a, that's how it works. National Labor Relations Act sounds real good, right? Made unions a monopoly. Now mon- unions are sometimes more of a problem. We say, oh, where would we be without the unions? Well, I I can tell you where you'd be with a kingdom. <laughs> you wouldn't need a union. You would already be together. You would already have collective bargaining. But not because you're paying dues to somebody, but because you were collective socially uh, with one another in a free assembly. And you would, you would probably be out working and out producing the companies. You'd be owning the companies. You'd be uh, employee-owned companies really quick once you were seeking the kingdom instead of all these other political actions and socialist and communist approaches to things. Uh, Agricultural Adjustment Act, you know, uh, pay farmers not to produce food. You know what that did? That unemployed all kinds of people. Oh, the farmer got paid for not producing food, but the processors didn't get paid for not processing the food he didn't produce. The the guy who was going to sell him petroleum for running his tractor, he's not going to make wages on selling him petroleum because he isn't running his tractor. It was, they actually were slowing down the economy that was already at an almost standstill. And so this is why it was not working. They, they talked about, oh, we've got so many people back to work in civilian work projects. No, it, you know, I've talked to people who lived through the depression and I, and some of them advocate the New Deal and advocate FDR. But others realized, no, that really wasn't working. And those are the ones who did more research. The ones who advocated, they just wanted to believe in government. Uh, same thing with the TVA, you know, and I've, I've talked to you about before the, uh, Tennessee Valley Authority. You know, they flooded 750,000 acres of land and the owners of those lands were compensated for those lands. But all the people who worked on those, those lands, the, the employees and, the, and the people who provided services for all those people and had restaurants and everything else, they were all out of a job. They all had to move uh, somewhere else because there were 750,000 acres that were not going to produce income for anybody in that community anymore. And besides that, it killed the industry that was produ- promoting true energy efficient, which was hydroelectric dams, which also the byproduct of hydroelectric dams, small ones, not giant Hoover dams, small ones all over up and down rivers. They would let water go by, but they would hold it up and pipe it and then run these hydroelectric deals. That was a growing industry of energy independence, and it would have kept growing, and it would be even more efficient today. It would be a real renewable resource. In the byproduct, it would have decreased the flooding that you see downriver all the time now because they would have had all these creeks that feed into there holding back water, some of the water, so that you didn't end up with this giant rush at the end. People do not think out what would have actually saved them had they... uh uh, not gone particular ways. They're being sold a bill of goods. And there's a lot of books you can read on it. Burton Folsom, Junior's New Deal or Raw Deal and, 
And uh, I can't even think of all the names. I'm sure you can Google them and find a lot of these different guys. But I was going to talk to you about uh, uh, Stephen Pearlstein's Can American Capitalism Survive? Uh, and he had this one phrase that he pops up with, fix the plumbing. We have to fix the plumbing. So what does that mean, fix the plumbing? Well, plumbing is infrastructure of like a house or building or whatever. Plumbing is that infrastructure of that. That's you. You're the plumbing. Okay. <laughs> and, and you have to fix that. Which, you know, you can, you could look at this all kinds of different ways. If you go back to vaccines, you know, smallpox was the original vaccine, I guess one of the most original vaccines. And, uh, and when he uh, created the smallpox vaccine, he did so because he noticed that milkmaids, women, girls who milk cows, uh, for a living, did not get smallpox. And the reason why is they had developed an immunity to smallpox because cows got cowpox, didn't kill them. They'd get these little pox now and then. Then it, they would eventually get immunity to themselves and it would heal up. But while they had the pox, they were secreting a fluid which would get onto the hands of the milkmaids. And the milkmaids were literally picking up immunity to smallpox from the cows. So this is how they started to manufacture uh, the first vaccines was using the blood from cows and producing that uh, vaccine that they would contaminate everybody with literally cowpox and then supposedly get an immunity. Now, they killed a lot of people <laughs> in the early days because they changed the process of creating vaccines and and I, I'm not sure that they're not killing a lot of people now. The Gar- Gar- Gardasil is certainly killing a lot of people. But the immunity that they got from cowpox was a lifetime immunity. Uh, if you got smallpox and got over it, it and, and even with that, what happens is that you get the cowpox, you have a certain immunity to smallpox. You get smallpox, but you don't get it bad because you have this predisposition to overcoming smallpox and and so therefore now you have lifetime immunity to smallpox so how do you introduce that into this to the population into the herd without injecting uh pharmaceuticals into your arm well there's lots of different ways but this is the natural way and for all you people who believe in evolution the interaction with these other species and similar things you can start to pick up immunities by your interaction in nature but almost all your social democrats don't come from the countryside they come from the cities they don't come from people who actually live in nature and deal with nature on a day-to-day basis they come from people who, and, and I'm not talking for service employees because they're not really living in nature. <laughs> talking farmers who actually live with and are a part of nature and ranchers, etc. And not that they all know the answers either. But there's a natural way to go about this and there's still a natural way to fix the plumbing. And and so uh, when I'm listening to Stephen talk about can capitalism survive and I already laid the groundwork that it's not real capitalism everybody talks about not real socialism 
what you're experiencing now is not real capitalism. There's a huge amount of socialism in it. But if we were to go back to real capitalism, you'd want to understand these principles so that you did not stray again. But in it, he, he lists a number of things like social capital. Uh, social capital, it broadly refers to those factors of effectively functioning social groups. That's social capital. Now, what's a social group? Well, one social group is the family. That That's a primary social group. So you want to have functioning families. Husband and wife staying together. Husband and wife raising their children. That's a functional social unit. But then you want to have other units. Well, a church of 500, 600 people is not a social unit. I mean, 1,000, 1,500 people, 2,000 people, 2,500 people. uh, That's not a social unit. Vaguely, it could be categorized as that. But you don't really have much interaction with individuals. And in order to cement real connections, binding connections, social connections, it needs to be on a personal level. Once you get more than 10 families, that social binding becomes less and less. And the more and more people you get, the less and less actual binding. And the more you're lost in the crowd. So another social unit would be the symposia, the company of ten. And that's why one of the reasons why Christ said that you needed to gather in that. It's, it's not a new idea. It's, it was around in the days of Moses. It was around in the days of Abraham. But it's part of that social capital. When you invest in the lives of one another, and you can't do that if you go running off, if you get distracted, and I only show up every six months, no, you have to show up on a regular basis. Just touch base. Just let people know that you're there. I'm still here. I haven't left anywhere. My number's the same as it's been for decades and decades and decades. I'm out here in the wilderness, but I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness, and my days are full of the kingdom. But you, where you are at, you can get distracted. But you need to develop social capital, not only with your family. And if you are with your family and you're not divorcing and you're sticking it out and you're, you're apologizing and forgiving and, and giving and making the relationship work, which takes time and energy, great. But now let's develop a broader base social capital, sit down in the tens. And this is, this is the way it works. So, uh, so, one of the things in the tens is that you have to have that interpersonal relationship. That's one of the things he lists. Uh, social capital includes that interpersonal relationship, which is why I say you need the tens. And yeah, a lot of our groups of ten, they're not on the same street. So they can't actually physically meet. They have to do it on the phone. But do it on the phone. And then figure out assignments where you can start spreading the word around and and people were trying to print up flyers. Great. But that's not... It, what's going to cement the relationship is not flyers. It may get something interesting. I'm working on a couple of booklets that people have been asking me to work on. And uh, hopefully they'll come out. But I'm I'm running ragged. But I, you need... There needs to be more... You're my staff. Everybody out there listening. Uh, I I don't control you. But... 
if you're going to seek the kingdom, you have to seek it for others. Therefore, you have to be trying to spread the word with others. So everybody, you don't just join the email groups because that's not the living network. That's just an email network. You have to join congregations. Even if you you don't live on the same block. And then you just make a call. And you don't have to do a lot of talking. You just make a call and say, you know, all present and accounted for. And what can we do this week? Did anybody do anything this week? What can we do next week? And does anybody need any help? And then that minister calls in. Well, whoever you pick as your minister, he calls in with the other ministers. And they, if you had anything to report, he now reports it to the other ministers. And he gets feedback. And maybe he'll take it back to you. We're just scratching the surface of what this will mean because the world has still got this other system in place. When that system goes down, you want to be ready. This is preparedness to have that network of tens of thousands of people who are learning what it means to care about one another and operate a free society. By then, we won't have to meet in phones. If you get tens of thousands of people, you'll have congregations in every major city. But you have to make it happen by investing in the hope that others will start coming together. We have the material there for you to share, but you have to share it. And that's one of the next things he lists is a shared sense of identity. So, who, did I start the kingdom of God? No, Christ did. You know, but, I mean, you read about Christ's life and you got to love the guy, Right? You you got to think about this guy was out to help other people. And he was willing to face death in order to do it. So is that the same spirit that's in you? That's the identity you want. Is that identity of Christ. Who wasn't going to storm off because somebody disagreed with him. He, he was going to get down and wash your feet. If you weren't going to let him do that, he says, you can't have any part of me. Because that's that's my nature. I'm a foot washer kind of guy. I'm a servant kind. What? Of, who is better? He who serves or who he who is served? Christ did not come to be served. He came to serve others. Why do you gather in congregations of tens, hundreds, and thousands? To be served or to serve others? Why do you go to your churches? I'm sure some of you go to your churches to help out. That's why I say you go to all these churches and there's always a couple of people that do all the work. So anyway, so that's your shared identity, the the true identity of Christ. Who wasn't running around saying, I'm saved, I'm saved, I believe, I'm saved. No, he was going around that you might be saved. And yeah, you say you believe in Christ, show me Christ's identity in what you do. And so you also have to have a shared understanding that the kingdom of God was at hand. It was for the living. It was taken away from the Pharisees and it was appointed to this new flock that was this little flock that was called out. And they were rightly dividing the bread according to what the people contributed. This is a wholly different group of people than what you would find in most cities. They weren't the majority, but they didn't need to be. And so, then he comes down to two things he calls shared norms and shared values. And we probably won't get to all those things. He also talks about trust and cooperation 
and reciprocity. Now, reciprocity can cover uh, two things. You know, it can have to do with, uh, you know, recompense. Uh, it can have to do with, you know, your, your granddad helped my dad out, so I want to help you out. Uh, it, it can mean all, it, it isn't necessarily, uh, always negative. It, it has to do with opportunities and honor and all those things. So, so what, real quick, what is social norms? Uh, where, where do they come from? Social norms, uh, is the network of relationships between people who live and work in a particular society, enabling that society to function effectively. And you can see this in the workplace. And we talked about the employer who was not doing his job. He wasn't actually an employer, he was a supervisor. He was not doing his job. He was using his employees. He was taking credit for their work, but then throwing them under the bus when something went wrong because it was all about him. It was a selfish relationship with his employees. And he was allowed to stay in place because his supervisor was not doing his job. He wasn't there being there. And and I explained this to the one individual who was telling me about the fact that in, in a monkey troop, the females are the most uh, empathetic, but uh, the most uh, most empathetic chimp in the whole group and the whole clan is the leader. He is what to put it back into terms of him, uh, supervisors. You have to be firm, fair, and consistent, and uh, so he. He's firm, but he's also caring. If anybody gets hurt, he is there. If anybody gets ill, he is there. He is there to protect so that nobody abuses anybody else. If somebody starts a fight, he goes and breaks it up. And he's firm, fair, and consistent. Those are all unselfish characteristics. And in the kingdom of God, you're all leaders. You're leaders of yourselves. You're leaders of your family. And you're all leaders in the community. So you can't take it out. It's self-perpetuating. But anyway, until then, till we meet again, peace on your house. And let's see you on the network. Join the network. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net.